chamber in the Palace of Westminster was a wonder of the 13th century, but the faded images were now obscured by tapestries. The medieval world barely intruded into the new on 8th January 1649, when men in military buff coats or plain Puritan suits sat at trestle tables and debated the fate of their king. Two days earlier, a high court had been established that would, for the first time, try a king of England. This was justified on the practical grounds of preventing Charles from raising further commotions, rebellions and invasions, and on a matter of principle, that the king should have no impunity from the law. The 135 judges who had been appointed by the House of Commons were mostly army officers and radical MPs. 53 attended this meeting, including the leading general, Thomas Fairfax, and his subordinate, Oliver Cromwell. Charles was to be charged with having a wicked design totally to subvert the fundamental laws and liberties of this nation and in their place to introduce an arbitrary and tyrannical government. Crimes, it was declared, that deserved exemplary and condign punishment. In other words, death. There was no certainty of outcome. Executing the king risked provoking foreign reprisals or a popular uprising. On the other hand, if Charles accepted the legality of the tribunal, he would be accepting that he had no veto over the Commons' decisions. He could therefore be returned to the throne subject to Parliament, a sword always over his head and grown grey in the documents of misfortune. Yet, as Cromwell reportedly warned, if the king refused to plead, then, in order to confirm the supreme power of the commons, they would have to cut off his head with the crown on it. How had it come to this? I am the historian Leander Delisle, uncovering the Tudors and Stuarts behind the myths. How indeed do you justify the killing of a king? The answer can be traced back to the 1550s, when Britain had two Catholic queens. To justify their efforts to overthrow them, Protestants had argued that monarchs drew their right to rule from the people, who therefore had the right to resist, even to kill, those they judged tyrants, or of the wrong religion. Charles was Protestant, but for some he was the wrong kind of Protestant. His love of beauty and worship idolatrous, his attachment to church government by bishops Popish. During the early years of his reign, his leading ministers had stood as surrogates for attacks on the king's policies. One was murdered, another executed for treason by Act of Parliament. Eventually, the mutual mistrust between Charles and his MPs had paved the way to civil war. But there was still no talk of killing the king. In 1642, Parliament claimed it was acting not against the rightful authority of the crown, but as England's highest court, seizing a form of power of attorney. Their aim was to rescue Charles from evil councillors who supposedly held him in their power. And the commission for Parliament's leading general at the time called for the preservation of the king's person. Then the bloodshed began and bitterness grew. In 1645, 
with the advent of a reformed new model army and more aggressive leadership under General Fairfax, the phrase calling for the preservation of Charles's life had been dropped. It would have been convenient for Parliament if Charles had been killed in battle, as his ancestor James IV of Scots had been at Flodden in 1513. But instead, Charles's armies were defeated and he had been imprisoned. Since 1646, Charles had been playing his enemies against each other, holding out for the best terms he could get under which he would be restored as king. That October, the most radical elements in the new model army had called for Charles to be tried as a man of blood. This was a biblical reference. The land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of the man that shed it. But there had remained another, more traditional way to dispose of a fallen monarch. Murder. In the Middle Ages, deposed kings had met mysterious deaths in prison that were ascribed to natural causes. This had encouraged the nation to unite around their successor. It would now get around the difficulties of a trial. For in English law, treason remained an action against a king, not by one. So, in November 1646, when Charles received warnings he was to be assassinated, he had believed them and had fled captivity. He was soon caught, and his flight was seen as an act of bad faith. Anger against Charles grew after he encouraged more bloodshed by supporting a royalist uprising and a Scots invasion in his cause in 1648. At a prayer meeting in Windsor that April, the new model army had passed a resolution to call Charles Stuart, that man of blood, to account. Yet, after these royalist and Scots forces were defeated, Parliament had continued to negotiate the terms of Charles's restoration. On 6th December 1648, the army had purged the House of Commons of those MPs opposed to a trial. So far, the only precedent for the trial of a monarch was that of Charles's Catholic grandmother, Mary, Queen of Scots, in 1587. Law, history and fact had been twisted to argue that a Scottish monarch owed the English monarch a duty of obedience, so that Mary could be found guilty of treason against her Tudor cousin, Elizabeth I. Now, law, history and fact were twisted again. The remaining rump of MPs declared it treason for an English king to levy war against Parliament and the Kingdom of England. This was rejected in the Lords, and so the Lords were made irrelevant. On 4th January, the Commons had declared that the people are, under God, the origin of all just power, just as Protestant rebels against Britain's Catholic queens had claimed in the last century. And the declaration continued with a new assertion. As the people's representatives, the Commons MPs held this power in trust, and their acts alone had the force of law. At a stroke, they had broken the traditional constitutional trinity of king, lords and commons. But what had replaced it? The absolute power of the commons looked frail in a Westminster guarded by the soldiers who had purged its MPs. And even General Fairfax had no answer. One of the purged MPs had reminded him of a biblical warning. 
Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? Until now, Fairfax had believed Cromwell backed him in seeking an outcome short of Charles's execution, even if he refused to plead. Fairfax would never attend a meeting of the judges again. But nor would he publicly oppose the coming trial, for that would risk tearing his beloved New Model Army apart. The judges who remained after Fairfax's departure elected a veteran London radical, the Chief Justice of Chester, John Bradshaw, as their Lord President, and agreed the trial would take place at Westminster Hall. The space was cleared, and a raised dais built for the judges at the southern end of the hall. On it were benches covered in red baize, a raised chair and a desk. Facing these was another chair covered in red velvet. It was here that Charles would sit. On 20th January, Charles was escorted under guard out of the back of his lodging next to the palace. Inside, the roll call of the judges had begun. Many names were greeted by silence save for that of Fairfax. A masked Lady Fairfax shouted out, He has more wit than to be here. Charles entered Westminster Hall just after 2pm through a doorway close to where the judges sat. A slight figure dressed in black silk and with a long grey beard. He had refused the barber Parliament had appointed, fearful the man would one day cut his throat. For Charles, his murder seemed a far more likely fate than a death sentence. The sergeant of arms conducted Charles to the railed-off area known as the bar. Charles stood in a tall hat. It remained on his head as a reminder that no one there was his equal, so legally able to be his judge. Charles's gaze was directed at the court. Then he turned round. Behind a wooden partition and an iron railing was a line of guards armed with halberds, pikes with axe blades. Behind them, more soldiers lined the walkway between the spectators who filled the rest of the space. Charles looked up at the far corners of the room, where there were galleries accessed from private houses. These were filled with people of high status. Charles looked down, his eyes sweeping the lowlier spectators before he faced the court once more. Bradshaw addressed the king. Charles Stuart, King of England, the Commons of England being assembled in Parliament, being deeply sensible of the calamities that have fallen upon this nation, which is fixed upon you as the principal author of it, have resolved to make inquisition for blood. It was for this that they had constituted this high court of justice before which you are bought. The act of the trial of Charles Stuart, King of England, was read out, and Charles accused as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, and a public and implacable enemy to the Commonwealth of England. The neat, 40-year-old prosecuting counsel, John Cook, who stood on Charles's right, prepared to speak. But Charles tapped him on the shoulder with his cane. Hold, he said. Cook moved to continue and on the third attempt, Charles's cane struck Cook hard enough to send its silver head crashing to the ground. A hush fell across the room. Charles waited for someone to pick it up. No one bent for their king. So he retrieved it himself. 
Charles could now have argued that all he did was in self-defence, but he did not take that bait. I would know by what power I am called hither. He believed the threat of the death sentence was merely an act of brinkmanship in the negotiations for his restoration as king, and that he still had cards to play. And he was right. Another war was now brewing in Ireland, and only Charles could prevent it. But he did not understand their red line that first he had to accept their jurisdiction. So Charles reminded the court he was on the point of concluding treaty negotiations with Parliament, and, that being the case, he wanted to know what was their authority. Bradshaw retorted that Charles was being tried in the name of the people of England of which you are elected king. No, Charles returned, England was never an elected kingdom. And if the people were represented by Parliament, which was a court, where was Parliament, Charles wanted to know. I see no House of Lords here that may constitute a Parliament. That is your apprehension, Bradshaw snapped. We are satisfied who are your judges. Matters had not gone as Bradshaw hoped, but on the Monday, Bradshaw again asked Charles to plead. Charles again asked what authority he was being tried by. Bradshaw repeated that the judges sat by the authority of the Commons. The Commons of England was never a court. I would know how they came to be so, Charles demanded. On the third day, Charles was asked to plead once more, and once more. Charles asked on what authority he was called. By now, pressure to halt the trial was growing. Ministers fulminated from pulpits against the sin of regicide, while the Scots, French and Dutch ambassadors made veiled threats about what they might do if he were to be executed. Charles was, after all, a King of Scots, the uncle of the King of France and father-in-law of the Prince of Orange. Prosecuting counsel... John Cook was as frustrated as Bradshaw. If Charles pleaded, he could be convicted, leaving the rump Parliament to commute his sentence. This would be a supreme act of parliamentary sovereignty. But Charles had not pleaded. That night, a man stopped Cook on his way home, asking what to expect from the trial at this crucial juncture. Cook replied bitterly, the king must die, and monarchy must die with him. In refusing to accept the jurisdiction of the court, Charles had denied that the Commons was a superior power in the kingdom. The cost of keeping Charles alive was now greater than that of his death. He had left them with no choice but to cut off his head. The next day, witness statements were read out in a public session to help justify what was to come. They included tales of war crimes and aggression. By the following day, 26th January, the judges had agreed that Charles would be executed if he refused a last offer to plead. Cromwell judged Charles's fate to be divine providence. On the morning of Saturday 27th January, Charles was brought back into the hall and Bradshaw, dressed in red robes, reminded the court that Charles was brought before them on a charge of treason and other high crimes, in the name of the people of England. Anne Fairfax's voice rang out from the gallery. Not half, not a quarter of the people of England. 
Oliver Cromwell is a traitor. But the guards in the gallery dragged her out. Bradshaw then offered Charles a last opportunity to acknowledge the jurisdiction of the court. Charles instead asked that I may be heard in the painted chamber before the Lords and Commons. The hour had come to negotiate, or so Charles hoped. But in asking to see the Lords, he was again denying the supremacy of the Commons. The sentence was now handed down. The prisoner was addressed as one Charles Stuart, tyrant, traitor, murderer and public enemy. And as such, he was to be put to death by his severing his head from his body. The court stood. Charles now knew there was to be no negotiation. Will you hear me a word, sir? he asked. No, sir, replied Bradshaw. You are not to be heard after sentence. Charles I spoke his last words on the scaffold. They echoed the phrase stitched on his standard at the outbreak of civil war. Give Caesar his due. A subject and a sovereign were clean different things, he said. A sovereign alone had a divine right to rule. But he wanted his people's liberties and freedom as much as anybody, he said. These lay in the rule of law, he argued, that he had defended in court at the cost of his life. As such, I am a martyr of the people, he said. In reality, Charles's failed kingship had seen more deaths in England as a percentage of population than would die in the trenches of World War I. If he was not a traitor and murderer, he was not a martyr either. But he was right on one matter. The rump, parliament and the army had taken an axe to the law. And when his head fell on 10th January 1649, England faced a new tyranny. If you are interested in learning more about Charles I, then you may be interested in my biography, White King, The Tragedy of Charles I, winner of the Historical Writers Association Nonfiction Crown. You can also contact me via my website, Facebook or Twitter. Twitter.